Good morning and welcome. My name is Nick Davies and I'm a Programme Director at the Institute for Government. Thank you very much for joining us for this event on how to respond to a crisis, which has been kindly supported by the British Red Cross. Responding to crises requires different parts of the public, private and voluntary sectors to work together. Some bodies, such as local authorities, NHS trusts, police forces, transport companies and utilities have legal responsibilities in a crisis under the Civil Contingencies Act, while others, such as charities, community and mutual aid groups, also provide critical care services, volunteers for the NHS and deliver food to isolated neighbours. Much of this work is coordinated through local resilience forums, and there are many examples of successful collaboration in the response to coronavirus. However, the effectiveness of coordination has varied substantially in different parts of the country and across and between national and local government. Which parts of national and local government have responded most effectively? What are the appropriate roles and responsibilities for different organisations in a crisis? How can all these different bodies best collaborate and coordinate? And what lessons can be learned for future crises? To discuss these issues and more, I'm delighted to be joined by four fantastic speakers. First up will be Jackie Smith, Chair of University Hospitals Birmingham and former Home Secretary. Second will be Robin Tundham, Chief Executive of Calderdale Council, Co-Chair of West Yorkshire Prepared. Third will be Saffron Cordery, Deputy Chief Executive of NHS Providers. And fourth will be Mike Adamson, Chief Executive of the British Red Cross. Following the opening remarks, I will ask a few follow-up questions before taking questions from the audience. If you have a question for any of our panellists, please submit them using the Q&A function. You can submit them while we're speaking and I'll try to ask as many of them as possible. I'd also like to encourage you to tweet using hashtag IFG crises. Right, without further ado, I'll hand over to Jackie Smith, our first panellist. Over to you, Jackie. Nick, thank you very much and thanks for inviting me to be part of what sounds like a really interesting session. I just want to make um, three broad points um, and then obviously I'm very much looking forward to the discussion. Um, before that, I think it's worthwhile saying that whilst in government I experienced some crises, I don't think anybody has experienced anything like this and particularly in terms of the length of time in which we have essentially been in emergency mode and as I'll suggest later I think that has had a serious impact on the way in which uh, people have responded. So my first point is about the extent or lack of preparation that there was for uh, dealing with this pandemic. When I was the Home Secretary I had responsibility across government for uh, the national risk Register And of course, as we now know, uh, flu pandemic was the highest risk. And in 2016, the government, to be fair, did carry out an exercise in preparedness. And yet there seems to have been, in my view, a failure to adequately prepare and learn the lessons, even from that exercise that certainly identified that there would be potential capacity issues in the NHS, that social care would be under pressure and that it would be difficult to coordinate across the health and care divide. Interestingly, in the government's counter-terror strategy, two of the four uh, pillars of that are to prepare and to protect. And it feels to me as if government now needs to think about how it ensures that there is sufficient clout, frankly, across government and into departments to prepare for any future uh, emergencies. Because whilst the Civil Contingency Secretariat works hard and does a good job, 
I don't think it is sufficiently salient to ministers or to departments. And to a certain extent, we saw that in the way in which some government departments certainly responded better than others to the challenges of this uh, crisis. Whilst I think we could say the Treasury did well, I certainly don't think we could say the Department for Education did, for example. Also on preparation, I think we need to be more willing to learn internationally, because had we looked at the experience of some other countries in terms of their borders, in terms of their communication, I think we would have done better during the course of this crisis. My second point is what should politicians do at a time of um, crisis? Firstly, I think politicians will need to be trained in how to respond. Uh, my first introduction to the machinery of government for dealing with a crisis was literally on my first day as Home Secretary when I faced a terror attack. I think people need to have a bit more of an idea before they're thrown into the middle of it. Secondly, I think politicians have an important role to play. They can be the generalist at a time when specialists are important, but actually the public needs its questions asked and people need to join the dots and consider the implications of particular um, uh, issues, particularly, as I've suggested, if a crisis goes on longer, which means that you will have trade-offs that become more significant, the public become more sceptical and command and control runs out of ro the road. And incidentally, I think Parliament needs to think about the role it plays in scrutinising and challenging in a situation like that as well. I think we've learned that diversity in government and thinking is important. Frankly, I don't think that some of the decisions about lockdown and the lifting of lockdown would have been made quite so uh, quickly or communicated quite so badly had there been more people that understood that childcare is quite important if you're going to send people back to uh, work. And my final point is about the role of different uh, sectors. Were they used to best effect? Personally, I think there's been too little use of the voluntary sector and local government and the wrong use of the private sector. As the chair of the Joe Cox Foundation, uh, we, we've done some really good work during the course of the crisis focusing on uh, connection and to be fair we've had support from government to enable us uh, to do that but I think there's been a lot of other very good voluntary sector activity that hasn't necessarily received the support it needs. Secondly I think local and regional government if had they been more closely involved we may not have had the crisis around on social care that we clearly had. We would have had a better understanding of the disproportionate impact on different uh, communities. And frankly, we could have used the expertise in local government, particularly public health departments in tracing to ensure that test and trace worked uh, better. There is obviously a role for the private sector, but I think it was used wrongly. There wasn't enough in the procurement and distribution of PPE and equipment, which I don't think is a civil service skill. But there was too much uh, in areas like test and trace when actually the NHS and local government would have done a better job. We delivered, including my trust in terms of the Birmingham uh, Nightingale, uh, those Nightingales enormously quickly and effectively. But of course, there was a policy failure in terms of whether or not we would have had enough staff to staff them in the long term. And finally, of course, Vaccination was one area that got the right balance. The private sector innovation, albeit partnered very effectively with public funded research and access to the NHS for trials, 
the private sector in the in the um, person of Kate Bingham got the procurement very right, but the distribution happened because the NHS used tried and tested methods and people in order to get that vaccine uh, out there. That's what happens when you get things right. And let's hope that we can learn from this and get things right for any future crisis. Thank you, Nick. Thank you very much, Jackie. Uh, now to our second speaker, Robin Tundham. Thanks, Nick. It's really um, a privilege to be part of this conversation and uh, following on from Jackie, clearly there's a huge uh, amount of learning and this feels to me the time that we should be beginning to, to, to learn and think and reflect. Uh, there's, I think, a rush to move on and this, there's a, this is really is a time for reflection. I mean, we, we live in our local, uh, we live our lives in local places and I'm going to speak and make four points really about the role of local authorities and the role of local resilience forums. Uh, I think I think the first thing I'd I'd want to say is that all of the challenges Jackie has set out are, are right. Um, but I also want to say that the, I think we found the role of local authorities in its true and core sense in the pandemic. We almost I think in some sense rediscovered the core function of what a local authority is for in local places. Uh, it began in uh, 200 years ago in Victorian England in the form it is now to to support the public health and well-being of its place and its people. At that time, it was sanitation, safe food and regulation. What we saw is local government coming forward to manage the impact of the pandemic, often with one hand behind our back, but we we did that and I think we did a great job in collaboration with the voluntary community sector, in collaboration with national government. Uh, and so some examples of that, I mean, the PPE issues where effectively people began to source and support what was a systemic issue and a national issue really. Uh, and as a resilience forum spending Easter weekend in the first wave, literally kind of running PPE to acute hospitals to support the impact of the first wave. I think we saw with shielding, shielding the most vulnerable, the issues about why a local determined granular understanding of place is important. You cannot design food parcels from Whitehall for people in Halifax that meet their needs and that are good quality. Uh, and we saw that. Uh, we also saw, as Jackie said, on test and trace, the way in which um, there is an element of the, the the testing that can be done through a national structure, but local contact tracing to support people to self-isolate and actually respond to the impact of being positive was something that really local authorities stepped forward to do. Uh, Calderdale, uh, we were the third in the country to do that. We're the second now to also do local tracing with contacts of those positive and we've asked to do the whole thing and really coming into a situation that wasn't ideal. Managing outbreaks, again, it's almost that Victorian sense of managing the risk within workplaces, within factories, within uh, the situation where people had to work. But also I think it exposed, whilst that was all a positive response, the fundamental issue of not addressing social care in the last 20 years is, 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 is has come home to all of us and still we don't have a solution to that. So we, we discovered who we were and that this was a global pandemic with hyper local consequences. Secondly, I think uh, the really challenging sense of equity and health inequalities, lack of access for all and the disparate way this hit different parts of the country and different communities, whether you're in a key worker economy like Bradford or Huddersfield or Halifax, where a high proportion of your population need to go out to work, where housing density, multi-generational households, 
systemic issues and structural inequalities that have, that have accumulated. Michael Marmot, I mean, ironically launched his update report uh, just before the pandemic hit, saying how the situation worsened in the last decade. And these things had really led to a, a systemic and sustained impact. So in our three local authorities, the Coldwell, Bradford and Kirk Lees, we have been in, uh, under, under full restrictions uh, at times of full restrictions and other restrictions where uh, at times since the uh, just before the Eid, July the 31st announcement by government and we have not had a situation of no restrictions since then. So the experience, the lived experience this pandemic has been very different depending on where you live, where you work, what housing you're in, and that's really been exposed. I mean, there must be an impetus to do, impetus to do something about that. Thirdly, um, I think, uh, and more positively, the collaborative advantage, the collaborative authority you can get if something like a structure for a local resilience forum, which was the structure we had in place at West Yorkshire level, 2.2 million people could be mobilised with all parts of the sector, with 40 agencies able to, whether it's environment agency, Yorkshire Water, prison and probation, even agencies that may not be seen to be at the forefront of the pandemic in the way that the NHS was, local authorities and voluntary sector. If you, the, using our collective resources was incredible. The, the, the Civil Contingencies Act really wasn't designed for this kind of situation, I think. Uh, none of us, although it was the risk register number one risk, as Jackie has said, we were in a major incident um, from the 20th of March. We're just about this week to go out of that status, really in a, in a context where major incidents should have been kind of uh, a matter of hours before you move to recovery. So we have learnt the, the, the power, though, of that sustained collaborative effort. And I, I, I won't say too much about the vaccine, I'm sure Saffron's going to touch on it, but the vaccine has been an incredible job by the NHS, but it's also been done in collaboration in place. Uh, it's been through um, police and um, local authorities doing site risk assessments, but particularly through support to our communities, supporting our primary care networks, a voluntary community sector working around vaccine uptake. We know that um, there's a real risk you could hit the target, but miss the point in terms of those health inequalities and inequities I've described. So, so I think the collective effort of all elements of the pandemic has been essential. And then just finally, I think uh, we are still learning. And as we move towards recovery, I think that's a, there's a discussion to be had just on that word. Recovery to what? Are we recovering to something uh, that was, people talk about sort of a new normal or getting back to normal, when we know that this has identified some systemic issues we need to address. The recognition of the scarring within communities, the lack of opportunity within for, for some children, young people, the, 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 the nature of the, the need to level up in health and wealth and to join health and wealth agendas together is really important. So a real impetus to not to not learn, to not make the same mistakes again. And finally, I think it's, it's I think it's really powerful that British Red, Red Cross are hosting this event because I think there's international learning around disaster recovery. We are now moving to a disaster recovery status and phase, and I think we need to think about this in an international context. Uh, the desire to move on to kind of uh, to get back to normal is, is understandable, but I think we need to learn and live with the legacy of this, as well as some of the opportunities it's identified. And I think local authorities will continue to step forward to play their part in that. Robin, Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, now to our third speaker, Saffron. 
Thanks very much, Nick, and I'm delighted to be here and to join such an illustrious panel. Um, so I think the first thing I I want to say is that I think we need to think back to before the pandemic and and where we were so that we can assess our response in light of that. So before the pandemic, from an NHS perspective, things were pretty tough. Structurally, we knew that things were pretty tough. We had huge, huge vacancies in the workforce. We had demand that was going through the roof. We didn't have enough beds. You know, mental health demand was growing and growing and growing. And despite significant investment, things were still pretty tricky. So I think it's worth remembering where we were before the pandemic when we think about our response. The second thing I want to say is that it it's really clear that um, I remember sitting around a, a dinner table in about February with with a, a key leader from one of the arm's length bodies who basically said things are challenging now. If this Wuhan novel coronavirus takes off, then all bets are off. And I think we have to think about how we've responded in the context of all bets being off because that's where we were. No one imagined it. And I think even that person, when they said it, didn't imagine it, but it did come to pass. And I think I agree with, with most of, of what previous speakers have said, and, and in particular, the, the role of, of local government here has hugely come to the fore. Um, I'll declare an interest. I used to work in the LGA, so local government very close to my heart. But I think that we need to think about what each separate part of, of the system did. And, and I'm going to talk about kind of three key things that happened to step up to respond and then the lessons from that. So the first thing that I think is really important in this from an NHS and a local public service perspective was the existing infrastructure and system and process that was in place. We, we didn't do this from a standing start. You know, we do have systems in place. So the emergency preparedness, resilience and response, you know, the gold command, all of those things that go in that that kind of kick off once an emergency isn't announced. But Robin is absolutely right that where we were was that that's that's for emergencies. That's to last for maximum of probably three weeks or a month. You don't expect to be in this for a sustained period. But it is worth remembering that in that sense, those structures were there and they were used really effectively on an ongoing basis. And that is down to the diligence, the structures of local health services, local government, local voluntary sector, all, all working together. I think the second thing I want to say is that every part of the local public sector, but from my perspective at the NHS in particular, showed extraordinary innovation and ingenuity in, in what they did to step up a massive response. So if we think about what happened in the NHS, you know, not quite overnight, but over a week, we probably saw 30,000 extra hospital beds stood up. We saw the Nightingales created. We saw uh, a policy decision of discharge to assess across, across the, the community sector being stood up you know that was a, a a policy that had been a long time brewing suddenly came into force very very quickly and we saw mental health services redeploying their staff to different parts of the NHS in order to support 
the response in those very early days. So what we saw was massive ingenuity and innovation from NHS frontline staff leaders and their partners locally. I think what we need to also think about is what enabled that response. And I think that this is where what we saw was, and this is absolutely critical, and one of the lessons I'll come back to, we saw a loosening of the grip of, of some probably unnecessary regulatory controls that, that mean that people can't take decisions quickly. We were very much in a scenario of, of ask forgiveness, not permission, in order to do things very, very quickly. That doesn't mean that governance disappeared, but it meant that the very long bureaucratic processes that people sometimes have to go through to get permission to do things were significantly truncated in order to turn things around. And I think that's very, very important. And we saw a flow of cash into the NHS, the like of which we haven't seen before. And that truly did enable all sorts of things to happen. And not only did it enable the NHS to stand things up, but it also, I would say, um, oiled the cogs between the different parts of local public services because people didn't have to worry about about the um, exchange of monies between them. They they were able simply to get on with on with things in a number of contexts. And I think it was also supported by by two other elements. One was a mission focus, so no one was trying to do anything else. This was the show in town. Everyone was getting on with that. There, there were no distractions from the task because this was the only thing to do. And that came alongside public support. And I think that's also really, really important to remember. So there was this number of factors that came together to really help the NHS and the NHS took full advantage of them to step up to the task at hand. Um, I think the lessons that we've learned, mine are, are pretty similar to previous speakers so far, which is firstly that we have to use tried and tested routes in order to deliver effectively. Vaccines is a key example of where you, you have that split between national where it makes sense, where the scale is important, where you know infrastructure matters at a national level, but locally I know from my patch that central government couldn't possibly work out that the Hampshire Court Hotel was one of the best places to have the main testing centre where I live. But it, you know, absolutely is the case that it's very much about using local knowledge about where the transport links are best, how are people going to get there as the means of, of getting that vaccine out. I think the second lesson is about command and control. This goes back to where we're at in terms of of standing up an emergency response. Command and control has its place and it's very, very important at the beginning, but you do have to let go of that in order to bed in responses. You know, this, this pandemic is with us now. It will become endemic. We can't live in command and control for the whole time and it can't be the basis on which we make future decisions. And so my second, my third point in terms of lessons is that localism really, really matters. And if there's one lesson for me from the pandemic for future, for the future, when we think about a piece of legislation that's coming down the line in terms of a new health bill, I think an enabling framework to, to make sure that 
local areas, local bits of the public sector can do what they need to do within a broader framework is absolutely critical. What we mustn't do is revert to centralism. Localism is absolutely key in the effective delivery of local public services. And we know that particularly from public health and the public health response in this. And my final point is, and it's one that other speakers have made, but it's fundamental. It's fundamental to the NHS. It's fundamental across all bits of local public service, which is this focus now on, on health inequalities. Um, this isn't a new issue. This is an ongoing issue, but it matters to frontline NHS staff. We know that from the challenges we've seen in the NHS on things like risk assessments. We know it in terms of vaccine take up. We know it from our local communities who have suffered more if they are poorer or from a minority ethnic background. And we also know that there are health inequalities in a sense between different parts of the health service even. So the, the focus on acute trust has been huge and it's absolutely right. At the beginning of this pandemic, that was really important. What we've got to remember is that we actually have a mental health crisis and a ticking time, a ticking bomb at the moment in terms of how we manage the demand coming out of of the pandemic and pre-existing the pandemic for mental health. We don't always see those in, in equal terms and people living through this pandemic will have truly suffered with their mental health as well as their physical health. There's so much for us to learn and I think what we don't need is a knee-jerk reaction on any of this in terms of how we go forward. Brilliant, thank you very much um, Saffron and now to our final speaker Mike Adamson. Good morning, everyone, uh, and great to be here. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. The, you know, I mean, the Red Cross was founded 150 years ago on a battlefield, um, and um, you know, therefore, I think responding to emergencies is really in our uh, DNA. I'm probably one of the very few sad people who carries around a copy of the National Risk Register with me uh, in my bag at all times, never knowing we separated from it. And indeed, as others have said. Um, yeah, the pandemic was in the top right hand corner in terms of likelihood um, and impact. Um, and um, the thing about emergencies is that you know, often it gets we get sucked into the language of systems and processes and gold and silver and bronze command. But really, they're about people um, and about the impact on people and um, you know, the dilemmas they face and the choices. And you know, one of the simplest ones that I always recall um, in this <coughs> response is that lady. <clears throat> excuse me, a lady in North Wales who had basically run out of money and she couldn't, she had to decide whether to uh, pay for, uh, to drive, for the petrol to drive to Chester for her cancer appointment or to do her weekly food shop for her family. Um, and clearly those are impossible choices that should never have to be made in a you know, G7 country. Um, and thankfully the Red Cross was there to help and uh, provide her with the cash, so that was not a choice she had to make. Um, and the role of the Red Cross in emergencies is um, is in uh, this pandemic, but also um, in flooding, in terror attacks, um, both here and around the world, as Robin has drawn out, um, and also at places like the Grenfell Tower fire, which um, has actually, in terms of the tragedy there, quite a lot in common in terms of the learning about uh, community connections um, and um, people's vulnerability and when recovery starts, as others have touched on. Yeah, we reckon that as the Red Cross, we reached um, over <clears throat> one and a half million people with um, during this um, pandemic through accommodations of food delivery, 
um, cash support, um, uh, community education into uh, people's homes and uh, schools, a whole range of ways in which we responded. But we also uh, convened uh, with sector partners and uh, built the Voluntary Community Sector Emergency Partnership, which I co-chair, uh, which has got 30 to 40 national organisations in it and nearly 200 local organisations. And that was formed in the aftermath of um, uh, Grenfell in order to improve the response within um, the ecosystem of the voluntary community sector to improve connectedness, to en enable a better understanding of local needs and better support to local organisations uh, to provide to provide support. And it's I think it's a really important investment and evolution um, of what we've um, of ways of working um, if we're um, going to do this and, and command and control doesn't work in that kind of environment, in fact. And it, there's been a magnificent response from individual organisations in all sectors and an outpouring of mutual aid. But I think both pri you know, private, public and voluntary sector can be very proud individually of what uh, we've done. But there is a sense in which the whole has still been less than the sum of the parts in kind of key, key moments. And you know, we'd, I'd pull out four takeaways just and just build on some of the points that have already been made. The first is that those pre-existing inequalities and unmet needs really, really matter. Um, and be it that about poverty, about ethnicity, about loneliness um, or about about health. And it's you know, become customary to talk about people and place in as we think about um, the, the way forwards for our health services and so on and, and for local authorities. But I think that's still less common in the emergency response um, uh, community, which is very much focused on uh, re responding in the immediate aftermath of an of an emergency and, and, and a very you know strong focus on quite rightly on systems and processes but actually understanding those existing health inequalities is a really important starting point for all emergencies and I say whether that's in flooding or after the Grenfell Tower fire tragedy or or in a pandemic and we need new tools to be able to understand where that vul those vulnerabilities are uh, using both data and evidence, but also new ways to reach and support people um, affected by an emergency. The second is really the critical importance of collaboration and connectedness um, before, during and after an emergency. You know, we've forged a lot of new relationships during this emergency. It's amazing how well you can get to know people on Zoom calls, um, but actually it's still much better to do it in advance uh, to get to know people. You know what you would be each would be doing. Um, you know how you're going to identify and assess needs. You've practiced with tabletop exercises and we've done tabletop exercises with through the emergency partnership for terror attacks and for um, flooding during this um, during this pandemic is about a part of gearing up and learning uh, for the future. But the collaboration and connectedness that we've established, we want to be able to continue uh, in order to understand what local needs are, to be able to mobilise support, to have the coordination hubs at regional level that allow us to coordinate activity and to connect sector, sector leaders into local and national government. And I won't comment, I mean, there's a real strong sense from my observations, I got much closer to central government <clears throat> over the course of the last year, that the, the connections between central and local government are simply not good enough or clear enough with a good mutual understanding of the way forwards. And then with, again, outwards to the volunteering community sector. The third key point I'd make is the volunteering community sector is, I think, not well understood by government and is undervalued uh, by it over, uh, overall. You know, local organisations, as Robin has touched on, have really repurposed themselves and surged in a whole range of new ways, doing new things they've never done before. 
be it around food deliveries or around vaccination support or supporting school testing. Similarly, the Red Cross has created new capacities and capabilities to, um, for example, distribute cash um, through 300 local referral partners um, uh, to help some people with no income, no savings, no recourse to public funds. We stood up a national support line to offer um, emotional support and signposting to people. We created a new program called Generation Digital to collect connect local local uh, young people uh, with older people to help them uh, you know, use new digital tools. All of these things have been created from scratch. And I think government has a somewhat um, romantic view that this surge of volunteering and mutual aid is kind of all that's needed and you can turn it, turn it on and off. When in fact, there are critical organizations, both locally and nationally, that mobilize those people, that do the safeguarding checks, that do the training and development. You don't deploy psychosocial support volunteers like the Red Cross does or St John Ambulance with their clinical uh, volunteers without a lot of training and indeed support to people uh, then to be able to handle the kind of traumatic situations that they're encountering, encountering at a local level. And I think the investment in civil society is all about the social return on investment. This is about actually supporting public services um, and, um, and is actually a contribution to national resilience. And I think we should see the investment in civil society as an investment in national resilience. And the fourth key point I would make is, is around consistency um, and about focus on human outcomes. As I say, a lot of the emergency response languages of systems and processes and I think recovery is all about people and about human outcomes so that people you know, get the right food, they get the right support, the, the right guidance, they get cash if they've not been able to actually uh, continue to go to work for whatever, whatever, whatever reason. But it's also about the consistency of those human outcomes. Um, LRFs and local authorities have done a magnificent job over the course of the last year, but they remain inconsistent um, in the way in which they work um, and indeed in the way in which they engage and the depth of engagement with the voluntary and community sector to enable us to play our part in ensuring those human outcomes. And we have a really good opportunity coming out of the integrated review with the focus on the development of a national resilience strategy to really build those connections in from the beginning right now. Um, but also the review of the upcoming review of the Civil Contingencies Act again creates the opportunity to really uh, invest in the connections and collaboration uh, and build that, embed that from, from right from now um, in the way in which we move forward and building the voluntary community sector into that. And we're at a unique moment, I think, where everyone, you know, everyone in the country has been affected by this personally and professionally. Everyone has discovered um, new ways of working and uh, since and many have actually had to respond, you know, uh, and develop new resilience and relationships. And I think there's a, therefore a curiosity about how we as a nation can work better together and really build national resilience for the future emergencies that sadly are, are bound to affect us as a result of climate change, cyber attacks, terror attacks or, or, or whatever. Thank you so much. Mike, thank you very much. Great. I'm now going to ask each of the panellists a question. Um, thank you to all those in the audience who submitted questions and um, keep them coming in. Uh, and remember to also tweet using ha uh, hashtag IFG crisis. Uh, Jackie, I'm going to come to you first. Um, you said that uh, politicians should be trained. Uh, the pandemic obviously hit fairly shortly after the election with a relatively new cabinet, many of whom had been in their current roles for less than a year. Do you think that? inexperience has been evident in the government's response and 
what more kind of specifically could future governments do to prepare new ministers? You know, for example, is it more regular live planning exercises? Well, firstly, I, I, I suspect it is the, the latter. Um, I did, I was a minister for 10 years. I did one live planning exercise in the whole of that period of time. I came into office uh, without really having had, even in the small amount of training that was given uh, in those days, uh, a proper briefing about the um, emergency uh, processes across uh, government, the role of the civil contingency secretariat, etc. I learned that very much on the job. In fact, I learned quite a lot about the response to terror incidents, literally in the middle of one, 24 hours after I became the Home Secretary. So this is a bit of a theme of mine that ministers uh, need to have the opportunity to, you know, I mean, everybody knows that you get asked to be a minister and then you are it in the same day. So I'm not saying it's possible to do that in advance, but I think uh, there would it would be good if there were more opportunity to have some understanding of what might happen and what might be the expectations on you in the event of an emergency alongside the other work that you're doing. But to come back to my first point, unless you make emergency planning much more central and give it much more kudos across government, you're not going to get ministers to focus on it, quite frankly. Um, and uh, then you will have the sort of difficulties potentially that we had in uh, this uh, during this crisis. Having said that, you know, the point I made was that it's not the job of ministers, I don't think, to be the specialists during crisis. It's the job of ministers to be the generalists, to make the links, to ask the questions that the public would be asking, to think about communication, um, to challenge about the situation and the understanding of that across, across government. You don't need a massive amount of training to be able to do that apart from being a minister, but I'm always in favour of a bit more guidance and a bit more support for ministers. Thank you. Uh, Robin, I'm going to come to you next. We've talked about the kind of uh, the different response from different parts of government. I wondered of the departments that you've liaised with during the crisis, I suppose I'm thinking particularly of Department of Health and Social Care, the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government and the Department for Education, which has been the easiest to collaborate and which has been the hardest, if you can <laughs> say, and uh, what can the latter learn from the former? <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, I think I think there's something there's some context to this because um, I think just building on sort of Jackie's point about the challenge of being prepared, I think there's a sort of a shift in that needs to happen in Whitehall and 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 in local organisations to see the sort of critical incidents and serious incidents and resilience challenges as pretty continuous, and that wasn't the context of when all of this came in. So, I suppose the 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 short answer to the question is that. MHCLG clearly understand, have an understanding of resilience, civil resilience, I think that, uh, and, and local government. And I think that the challenge is their influence in Whitehall is, is an issue. Uh, and that's, that's, that's where we, we, we face some real challenges. DHSC also clearly had an understanding of that sort of, sort of the health and care issues. Um, but but I think also didn't have the capacity and were rapidly trying to get themselves up to speed. The, the, the real issue about all of this in terms of uh, civil emergencies, I think, is that we went into this. So we went into this locally in West Yorkshire after a flooding, the third in eight years 
700 homes flooded in February uh, the, the 8th last year in, in Calderdale, straight into this. We'd had Brexit for 18 months and preparing for that. Most other departments, aside from those two, thought that the local resilience forms that like this kind of big local organization with lots of people doing working full time they didn't even understand the the, the the core mechanics of what resilience is and what local capacity was so i i think almost every other department was starting from a very 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 low base in understanding how they could mobilize whether it's transport whether it's food whether it's environment, whether it's kind of the economy, um, business impacts, they were starting. There was, it felt like, and this is civil servants, I'm not talking about politicians, civil servants had almost no understanding of what could be done and how it could be done, which led to a lot of the things happening that we saw play out in a quite a difficult and negative way. Thank you. Uh, Saffron, I'm going to come to you next. Um, you noted the uh, sort of the transformational power uh, that providing lots of money to the NHS during the crisis had, but also that on the eve of the crisis that the NHS was running very lean uh, with fewer staff and beds per capita than most comparable countries. And that's had obvious implications for the pandemic. I wonder, do you think there's an inevitable trade off between efficiency and resilience or would it be possible to achieve both or more of both by spending the NHS and the wider health and social care budget differently? So really good, quite complex question there. Um, I think that obviously um, what we've what we've got to to look at there is the fact that we've we've known for a very, very long time that the NHS has been running really we would call it running hot and um it does undermine resilience so i i think that answers the question which is that you know before the pandemic we were worried by flu we were worried by a typical flu outbreak not the outbreak of uh, a massive global pandemic so i think in a sense you know that that answers the question even even with investment year on year demand going through the roof and a shortage of workforce does mean that the NHS will run hot and that means it won't be resilient. I mean, there are, you, you can talk to 50 different people and get 50 different answers around workforce planning. But if if your workforce is predicated on not having enough staff, then you've answered your own question in terms of what it's going to be like when you even have a minor winter illness that takes a proportion of your staff out. In terms of the latter part of your question, yes, we could, of course, spend the health and care budget differently. And this is where what we have learned so, so starkly during the pandemic about health inequalities and prevention is absolutely critical. So there's an interesting point here about how over the last 10 years or so, we have focused on taking beds out and notionally investing in the community and I think that's really really important but you have to really invest and really make that transformation quickly what we didn't do was any kind of double running so we took the beds out and then hoped that we were going to build the out of hospital to put it that way um capacity but we didn't do we didn't do it at the same time so we took the beds out then tried to build the capacity up that doesn't work and I think that one of the 
the things that has really dismayed me over the last few years has been the reduction in the level of spending in in what was public health England, but investment in the local public health um, budget, which has meant that the things that should have been focusing on populations, on prevention, on doing what needs to be done locally to, to keep people well, to understand the impacts of what their housing, their education, their lifestyle, their jobs does for their physical and mental health was undermined. And I think that is the bit that we have got seriously wrong. Thank you, uh, Mike. And a question for you. We've spoken a lot about the kind of existing structures and which worked well and which haven't. What do you think needs to change about the UK's emergency structures? I think the first thing is to, is to root our uh, new approaches around people and um, not just around systems and processes. Clearly, you need really robust processes um, to handle an emergency, an immediate emergency response. But it's then it's all about recovery is all about people and many emergencies, be it a, a flood or a fire uh, and some of the typical things that we deal with, which as others have um, observed, take place over a shorter period of time. The recovery can start you know, after almost within the first 24 hours. And actually, then that's about how people come together and it's an ecosystem. It's not a command and control system. Um, and so you've got to create the conditions and the connection and collaboration within that ecosystem beforehand to make it more likely that the right people get the right support at the right time. And that's why the inequalities insights that others have talked about are so important. And that's why we shouldn't have a romantic view. There used to be a romantic view around the international, some of the global work around, you know, you build back better. I've, I don't often see us building back better globally. Therefore, I think Michael Marmot's insights around building back fairer are so important around the way in which we steer the support to the people who most need it to, and most need help to get back on their feet again. So the, some of the themes that we will be looking, we're conducting research at the moment, liter, uh, both literature review and interviews. The themes I'm going to be looking for are around consistency of outcome, uh, can't, but we can't prescribe it's the same everywhere. Um, a real focus on the human outcomes, not just on the, you know, the put the fire out kind of thing. Um, and the things that will enable that are around collaboration and preparedness, about data flow and information and insight. And that's between, uh, to be honest, between central and local government and then between central and local government and the voluntary and community sector. I think we can have two way flows there that can be tremendously valuable. Really building in from the beginning um, the partnership with the voluntary and community sector so that um, is um, embedded right from the beginning and then being clear about about where accountability lies because some of the conversations already explored some of the, the confusion that was in this emergency about where accountability actually lay so we've I, do, I really do think we've got a big opportunity right now um, while with the heightened awareness and the work around the national resilience strategy and civil contingencies review act review to really get something right for the future that may be quite different to what we've got at the moment but builds on the strengths of the LRFs and the way they came together. The amazing response of local authorities, amazing response of central government. Thank you. I'm going to go to um, some questions from the audience. Uh, I might. We've had two about uh, kind of communications and trust, which I uh, might put to Jackie first. So uh, Paul has asked uh, what lessons in communications we can learn from the last year in terms of message channels and frequency. Uh, and Jeff Haywood has asked uh, how important is retaining the trust of the general public in order to persuade them to follow government advice uh, and regulations, uh, and to what extent was that? Uh, 
uh, undermined by the actions of some senior leaders and advisors. OK, I, I, I'm going to resist the temptation of that open goal and <laughs> say, um, <laughs> and leave others to draw their own conclusions about that. Um, I thought uh, what uh, when I was talking about the role of politicians, I think actually one of the things that politicians do understand largely is the need to communicate in a straightforward way. I thought the uh, daily briefings where you had a combination of politician and uh, scientists worked well. Uh, I don't, I think as the uh, pandemic went on, it wasn't enough simply to say, we're only going to listen to the, the, or depend on scientists. I mean, I do think you need people who've got an understanding of the science to be communicating, but you also need politicians along uh, alongside them, particularly after a lengthy period of time. Uh, I think once again, we should have learned internationally. I mean, we don't have policy politicians like Jacinda Ardern, unfortunately, uh, but that type of communication was enormously with, with a bit more empathy and a lot of transparency was enormously uh, effective. Um, I think there was in the NHS too much, as, as Saffron suggested, I think after a period of time, there was too much centralised and still is centralised control over our communication. Uh, I think we understand how we could be talking to our local communities better, frankly, than the centre of the NHS does, and we should be freed up to do it a bit more. And finally, I think there are questions I would say about, um, particularly when we're talking about the briefings, whether or not, not the media covered itself with glory or not. I think this was a point where, frankly, more specialist uh, journalists should have had more prominence and for once the lobby, much as I love them and count some of them amongst my friends, did not cover themselves always in glory with the approach to questioning and the approach to uh, explanation that they had during the course of the crisis. Thank you. Robin, did you want to come in? Yeah, I just, I just say I'm being through um, other emergencies, no, no, nothing of the scale of this, but even even a major flooding of which we've had three as uh, my time under the LRF, they, the, the, the moment of crisis shows in the starkest way possible all of the investment you have or haven't done in your place to build relationships, to build voice relationships, whether uh, gate, gateways into your communities, faith leaders, local organisations, local people, um, the rec lo local professionals, doctors, social workers, teachers, these individuals can have key, key impact. And we're still um, finding this out today in terms of how we're going back to communities around those who've been reluctant to have the vaccine. We've had a vaccine pop up uh, at one of our mosques. We've had a local GP who, in, we, who went into a care home where at that point, um, very few of our social care staff were, were, were feeling frightened about having the vaccine. Uh, and through th through an afternoon of relationship building and communication with a trusted voice, everyone had the vaccine. And this is the kind of thing, this is the kind of detailed granular way that trust plays out. And I think you'll see different places have struggled where over many years they haven't built those relationships up and local authority can't do this on its own. The local authority is important, but it needs to shift power, build wealth in communities, build build leadership, build voice, listen to unheard voices, um, listen to people that other people listen to and be humble. 
And so I think that the whole thing around trust and where some of the issues we still have around, say, the vaccine is that we're talking about sometimes decades of anxiety about public services, people in authority. And this is when it gets really played out starkly. So um, I, I hope and I, I really I hope and I very strongly agree with Mike that the learning beginning has to begin now. Uh, and it is about building back fairer and it is about thinking. And and, and this means in also in our LRF phrase, I mean, we all talk about command and control, even in this crisis, it wasn't that long. It was it was weeks. But we, I mean, I, I talk about moving from command and control to convene and collaborate because actually an LRF is going to fail and agencies are going to fail if they just think that they can say do X and people do it. It will happen in the short term, but you have to build these relationships and then shift the power. Thank you. Thank you. Mike, did you want to come in? Well, just building on that point, you know, trust is an outcome, not an input, and um, you can't just assume it. And, uh, you know, we did a lot of work around and continue to do around vaccine hesitancy, both actually using social media and other other communications and trusted voices and and understanding who is trusted. And often with vaccine hesitancy, for example, it was around family members and people were wavering. It wasn't that they were they were being fed a lot of misinformation, but they were wavering. They just needed to be helped over the line, really, in terms of coming forwards. And you've got to combine that social media um, kind of engagement with the face to face engagement with, uh, again, trusted um, uh, partners, which are often the local specialist voluntary groups um, that are already working with a, a marginalised group, be it um, you know from an ethnic minority or whatever. Or in our case, we use people from our refugee services, for example, to engage again with displaced people, be they trafficked people or refugees, uh, refugees and asylum seekers themselves, again to get them to come forwards. And you talk about some, it's the problem is it's those those groups that get forgotten in the juggernaut that is an emergency. It's um, because actually um, yeah, the big numbers are very, very powerful and very important, but actually it's about how do we reach the much smaller numbers of people who won't otherwise come 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 forwards. Right. Um, we've now got a couple of questions about kind of uh, making sure that we kind of maintain some of the best of what has happened during the crisis. So there's a question here from Gillian Peel, who's asked what specifically should central government do? I'm going to put this to Mike first. What specifically should central government do to enhance the central local voluntary link and build on collaboration and connectiveness? Uh, and is there a case for new machinery or processes or attitudes to enable that? That's a great question. And I think it's actually that last phrase is really important. It's partly it's about attitudinal. A lot of people, a lot of organisations really lent in to collaborating and were really curious about how others could help and how we could, could work together. And I think it starts with, it really does um, uh, start with that. It then for central government, I think central government, as I you know, tried to make the case earlier, hadn't really, thinks that volunteers and so on just emerge and don't need don't need support and training and development guides. There's got to be a, a real uh, emphasis on the nurturing of the organisations that enable that to happen. And that's not just about cash. It is about attitudinal and about and then the reason we created the voluntary community sector emergency partnership, which I say 30 to 40 national organisations, nearly 200 local organisations, is to make it easier for both local and national government to engage with us because we recognise as a sector we're pretty diffuse. And it must be confusing at times for central and local government. They look at us a number of different organisations there are. But the emergency partnership is a, is a specific 
investment of time and effort to make it easier for information to flow within the sector so that we, we respond better, but also to make it easier for local and central government to engage with us so we can be better partners. We want to see that embedded into the National Resilience Strategy and the Civil Contingencies Act review. Thank you. And Saffron, did you have to add? Yeah, um, my point is pretty blunt, really, in terms of what central government needs to do. We've got, hopefully got, a comprehensive spending review coming up later this year. And I think the, the government, the Treasury in particular, but across government, we n need to approach that spending review very much with the pandemic at the front of their mind, not at the back of their mind. So they need to remember what we've gone through and also what it was like before and make sure that they think really, really carefully and hard about investment and levels of investment. And this isn't a pitch for more money for the NHS. This is actually a pitch for um, a a solution perhaps in the Queen's speech, perhaps beyond for social care. That's the dog that, that doesn't bark at the moment and that's absolutely wrong. You know, we in the NHS would say if you cut social care, then the NHS bleeds. And it's, it's absolutely the case. And we've got to see these fundamentals in place. I would say that we need to see some kind of more effective reform of local government funding. We can't be in a place where, you know, I know that there are councils up and down the country who are now going broke, local NHS organisations stepping in to fill the gap. That takes away, that undermines the commonwealth that is invested in the NHS. And I mentioned public health before, but it's absolutely fundamental that we invest in the public health function. It didn't need to prove itself, but it certainly proved itself during this pandemic. And whilst there are significant changes being made to that, and I'm not going to comment on those, I think that adequate investment in public health is critical. And then finally, we do have to think about how much we are investing in the future generations of local government workers, NHS workers, voluntary sector workers, and invest really effectively in education and training. That's the other bit from an NHS perspective that has um, really, really come a cropper over the last few years. And, and then of course, there's always capital expenditure, but I'm not gonna go into that because that's a whole other issue. Thank you. Well, I think I might bring the discussion um, to a close on that point. Um, I think we probably could have uh, continued this for, for another hour if we had the time. And thank you to all those who have um, submitted questions. I'm sorry I couldn't get um, through more. Um, for those who are interested in this uh, topic, I would obviously recommend the Institute for Government's uh, work on this, both on how prepared and resilient public services were for the crisis. Uh, and indeed, uh, if, if you're interested in more on the role of ministers, you can read our Ministers Reflect series, uh, which includes uh, interviews with Jackie and many others uh, on how they found the experience of being a minister. Uh, I'll close by uh, thanking our four fantastic speakers for a brilliant discussion. Uh, thank you to the British Red Cross uh, for supporting the event. Uh, and thank you to all those who've watched today or listen back later on SoundCloud or YouTube. Goodbye.